everybody just take a moment just to thank the Lord. You know, many of you may have a lot of things going on in your life, but there's a lot of things that you could be thankful for. And it's the enemy's plan to get you so focused on what's not going right that you forget to thank God for what he's doing correctly in your heart. the power of thanksgiving you've lost the ability to be made whole in whatever circumstance God's placed you in there's a story in the Bible of Daniel who was kidnapped from his home when he was real young a young boy by a foreign army unfair family probably was murdered took him to a foreign land and cut out his manhood named him after a demon god and made him serve in the empire that killed his family and Daniel was found faithful in his service and it says he prayed three times a day in the spirit of thanksgiving what he had to be thankful for but he found something and the rest of us are just spoiled there's only a couple people in the Bible where God doesn't acquit any wrongdoing to them at all and Daniel was one of them so if he can pray in thanksgiving and say Father thank you for everything you're doing in my life surely we can too Father, we thank you for what you're doing. And though we don't understand everything, we don't have to to give thanks. We don't need our mind to be able to be in line. We just need our hearts to be able to be thankful for what you've done. And God, right now, I just lift up every member of this, this body, and I just ask, Father, that you would begin to move in their heart and their mind in such a way that they would not be able to withstand your presence or your heart, your pursuit. Father, we do lift up the people of Russia and Ukraine. I, I'm not intelligent enough to understand the politics, but I know this. You're a father, and you have people there, and we pray for them. We pray safety and protection, God. We pray counsel of the Lord, angelic visitation, the heart of God be released, miracles and signs and wonders to be in the midst. That, Father, your heart would hover over that land and begin to bring healing and that you would use your people to do so. And that, Father, if those who've lost their lives, Father, let it not be in vain. Let it birth the gospel even deeper in those who are still breathing and teach them to be able to give thanks in whatever they're going through. And we stand with them now the way you command us to do, and I'm asking God for mercy. I'm asking for mercy over that situation. And I thank you for moving, and I thank you for having your plan and your way that none of this took you by surprise. And though I don't believe it's your will, I believe you're going to work in it. I believe, Father, that you are going to work in it. We love you. We thank you, Father. We bless you, Jesus. Prepare our hearts for what you're doing in this land. Help me, Father. Speak your word and just your word only. Give us ears to hear 
eyes to see, hearts to believe. I love you, Jesus. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Guys, aren't they a blessing to the Lord? Just give the Lord a hand through them. He's just awesome. appreciate you guys. If you have children, you want to send them back, you can. If you want to keep them with you, that's totally fine too. Um, I I want to reiterate one announcement that I feel like maybe uh, didn't get quite completely heard. It's very important to me. Um, We have a sheet back there. For those of you who come consistently, or even if you don't come consistently, you're still welcome to participate. But we have a sheet there. The Lord put on my heart to to start 24-hour prayer. And that doesn't mean like like Kansas City does it with International House of Prayer, but just everybody takes a one-hour time slot, and they begin to pray in that slot, whatever the Lord lays on your heart. But specifically that God would be glorified and lifting up the body and... um, praying that, that, that God's reformation would come across the land and standing together in unity. So if that is your heart and you, and you want to participate in that, there's a little paper back there. Now it is first come, first serve. So whoever puts their name in the slot, it doesn't mean you can't pray in the same place. I don't mind two people taking the same, same time slot, but we want to try to get all the slots covered. And I know some of them are going to be harder to fill than others, but I also know that God wakes some of you guys up at two or three in the morning. Praise Jesus, it's not me. But some of y'all, God gets you up at two and three and you're up till four. And, and, uh, and I'm really thankful for the members of the body when it comes to that. <laughs> but um, so I, I think we can fill those, those spots. If you can only do 30 minutes, we also set it up for a 30 minute slot. So if you have like a lunch break or something like that, when you want to participate, um, please do so, and uh, um, put your name on there so we know who's covering what slot, and if we don't get it all covered, we're going to go with what we have, um, but we want to start increasing prayer over the land and uh, over the body of Christ, not just this body, but other bodies, and, and the, what the Lord's doing in the, in, in the nations, and uh, we know that nothing happens unless people pray. God has unlimited power, but He limits His power to those people who pray. Does that make sense? If Jesus was going to do it all himself, he would have done it by now. So we're not waiting on God, he's waiting on us. Amen? Okay, you guys are unsure, but maybe you'll figure it out. So please, if you want, it's back there on the table, so uh, if you want to sign up for that, please do so. And uh, those of you who are visiting, um, feel free to stay after church and eat with us and let us get to know you. And um, we'll go from there. Okay. Um, go ahead and turn to Exodus 14. I, those of you who have been here for the last few weeks, uh, minus last week where we had Brother Clay come in, we had a special service uh, last week, so we didn't get to continue our little series here that I felt like the Lord laid on my heart. But we're talking about mind renewal and the necessity of that. You know, I've been in church a long time, and I, I hear um, here and there, I hear people talk about, well, you need to renew your mind. And that's usually most of what I hear, and, and that's it. And um, I don't know about you guys, but anybody that's ever set out to do that, it's very difficult. <laughs> I mean, you train yourself to think a certain way for so many years, your brain just doesn't bend right away and say, oh, okay, that's easy. Um, 
And so we've been going through the process of this and and uh, and you know there's even a certain degree of mind renewal that has to happen to be able to receive what God is bringing you into. If we don't stay postured in a neutral position, when God tries to bring us into a, a future glory, many times our mindset is geared in and pinned down, nailed down to the last glory we had with him. And so the fact that we haven't renewed our minds in the place of neutrality to move forward and where he's taking us causes us to actually miss the thing we're praying for him to do in our life. Does that make sense? Was that just too long of a sentence? Um, if we don't tra- change how we think, then we're going to use what we're thinking now to keep us where, from where he wants us to be then. And so mind renewal, a lot of people feel like mind renewal has to do with just taking control of evil thoughts. That's, that's part of it. But the most damaging thoughts you're ever going to have, the most deceiving thoughts you're ever going to have to take on are not bad thoughts, they're good thoughts, that aren't best thoughts. Okay, at some point in your life, the enemy's going to figure out you're not going to go back to drugs and alcohol and premarital sex. It's not going to happen. You love him too much. So to stop you, what he's going to do is he's going to begin to choose, put something in your path that looks like Jesus but isn't him. He did the same thing to Jesus in Matthew 4. He gave Jesus an opportunity to save the world without the cross. Okay? Mind renewal has everything to do with doing God's will God's way. Doing God's will our way doesn't work. Even though we're trying to accomplish the same end goal, it never occurs. Abraham heard God, and he heard God's will. But he tried to do God's will his way and ended up with Ishmael. I say this over and over and over again. I will continue to say it because I want it hammered into your brain. It's one thing to hear God. It's quite another thing to properly interpret what you heard. People use the fact that, oh, I heard God as this defense against conviction and submission in their life. And they say, oh, I heard the Lord. And so then they don't listen to any counsel on the situation at all. They just barrel into what they heard and they assume it's going to be a certain way. It's going to play out a certain way. And then they're confused why it doesn't two, three, four, five, six years later. If you've lived in the gospel any degree of time whatsoever and you've heard God and you got ahead of the Lord in obedience and zeal, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. If you have it, then it'll come to you. At some point, God will speak to you and you'll actually go against the submissive authority that God places in his word and you will completely rebel against the uh, ancient voices that God's placed in your life and you're gonna go do something that you feel like God told you to do and then you're gonna wonder why it failed. Hearing the Lord isn't good enough. I know that sounds a little sacrilegious, but it's not good enough. You have to be postured in the will of God. Your mind has to be renewed. You have to be under the authority of the Lord. You have to be submitted to one to another in a body. We have to have the mind of Christ in a, in a corporate expression. What God calls you to do will never be void of the person next to you's gift in its involvement in it. God doesn't raise up lone rangers to go do one thing separate from the rest of the body. If God's called you to do something, there's somebody else that's supposed to be connected to that call. And if they're not moving with you, then you're ahead of the herd and you're going to get picked off. You understand what I'm saying? If we wait on God to do things God's way and God's time, then Isaac will be born in our life. 
And then even once Isaac's born in our life, a mind renewal situation still has to happen in what God does give us. Having been done his way, we still have to offer it back to him, even though it is ours to keep. This whole process of walking with Jesus never stops just because you've been given something. In fact, people tell me all the time, well, God gave me that. All the more reason to lay it down. But they use it as a justification that because God gave it to them, they can just do whatever they want with it. I, I, I think one of the reasons why the church, the true church, I'm not talking about the institution that, that, that exists just to entertain people once a week and then send them on their merry way and keeps them dependent upon a corporate service that it's like a shot of adrenaline in the arm, spiritually speaking, and they have to come back the next week because it wore off. I'm not, that, that's not the true church I'm talking about, but the, I think one of the reasons the true church hasn't actually made a huge impact in the, in the earth today is because the body isn't operating as a whole. Anytime you reduce something down to a one-man show, a pastor or somebody, and everybody comes to bow down to that man's word once a week, you have missed the entire reality of what Jesus died to create. My job, a pastor's job, we elevate them so high in society, and they're, they're nothing. They're temporary gifts. They're temporary offices. Go read it in Ephesians. I, I feel somewhat envious of you guys sometimes because I'm just called to equip you to be like Jesus, and once you get there, I'm like, well, what do I do then? You know? My job's over with. I don't know what to do. It's kind of like worshipers here. When they get to heaven, they're, you know, they're going to, wow, you know, I, I get to do this for forever, you know? But, but preachers, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? That's <laughs> why my identity doesn't lie in what I do. It lies in who I am. I'm a son of God. I'm not a pastor. Because heaven needs sons, it doesn't need preachers. So we exist in a reality now that we're going to fully absorb and take on then. That's living in the kingdom of God. It's not building something that's bigger and has more people. More people don't mean anything. In fact, more people sometimes can, can mean the exact opposite of what true success is. Go look at Jesus. He didn't have a whole lot of people following him, and the times that he did, he made things really real and all of them left. <laughs> so mind renewal is absolutely crucial. And it's very difficult for me sometimes to convince people that where your head is right now probably isn't where it should be. And the reason it's difficult is because you trust where your head is right now because you've, ever, you've made everything comfortable in your life where you're at. There may be something deep inside of you that knows that you need to change. Right? We all know there's something that needs to change. But we're pretty comfortable with, wow, we've got things set. And you know when we begin to cry out to God is when he starts upsetting the apple cart that we created. And we'll call it the devil. The devil's just attacking me when it's really the Lord upsetting your kingdom so that he can have his in your life. And you're rebuking the devil away and God's like, "Uh, actually, that's me. I'm so jealous for you that I don't care about what you created. I want you in what I've created. Does this make sense to you? But if your mind's not right, you're going to think it's the enemy. I have people come to me in my office all the time. And they're like, well, the devil's just fighting me on this and fighting me on that. And I look at them and I kind of chuckle. I go, no, that's your flesh. It's not the devil. <laughs> that's unchecked flesh and an unrenewed mind. And you need to fix that. You know what gets rid of flesh? The cross and 
Nobody likes the cross. Preach on the cross and tithing goes down. I preach on the cross a lot. and We still have all of our tithers, but one of the reasons why I think the church isn't effective is because you have really people who have been blessed financially but their mindset is that God gave this to me and it's mine. When their part of the body was to supply for the church. And then the church can't do what it's supposed to do. Even if it's spiritually positioned and postured in a correct way, it takes money to be able to do certain things. Amen? I don't ask for money here. How many times you got, how many y'all been with me a long time? How many times have I ever preached on tithing? There you go. All right. That's your business. Not my job to make you give. In fact, I learned one thing one thing a long time ago. I can't make you do anything. The more I try, the more I frustrate myself, and I really don't like frustration, so I'm done. <laughs> See, when a move of God, I want to talk to you this morning. When a move when God okay, when God begins to move, a line is drawn in the sand. Everybody wants a move of God, true or not. True. But how many of you know it takes the mind of Christ to pop, properly father the move that God's giving? It's not just in the bad things and the hard times. When God actually begins to move in a powerful way in Reformation or Revival, there's a line drawn because God doesn't release that amount of authority and power without responsibility. And everybody wants a church service where they can come in and feel God move in their heart and their life. But you have to understand that every time that happens, when the Spirit is poured out in a measure, there's an accountability that God requires for us to adhere to. And it's not just, oh, well, I go to this church because I feel the Holy Spirit's there and He's not at all these other churches which is, doesn't matter. You should be able to feel God in the Walmart line. That's your problem, not the church's problem. If you think it's the church's responsibility to, to bring forth a corporate uh, expression of, of, of feeling, then you've missed, the, you've missed the whole point of a personal relationship with Jesus. Okay. When God begins to move, he draws a line. When the line is drawn, what side you decide you're on depends upon the mindset renewal process you've, you've uh, come to to that point. So in other words, when God lays it out and he lays his, his power out and his decisions out, where, which side you find yourself on hinges solely upon the amount of mind renewal you've done up to that point. When that happens, it's not time to renew your mind. You cannot renew your mind when the line is drawn in the sand. You will choose one way or the other based upon what you've lived before that moment. So much of what happens in life we miss because we haven't used the times of preparation God's given us. What, what your daily life is that you call mundane, circumstantial drudgery is God's classroom to get you into a place where your mind is renewed so that when the line is drawn, you're on the right side. But we look at it as God trying to alleviate us from all these things. Lord, just, just take this stress away from me. No, you know, you need that stress in your life so that you can properly learn how to function and thrive in the middle of it. Amen. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of God no matter where you are. Yes. Amen. And, and we've created this cushy mentality of, 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 of Christianity where, where a good week is when nothing bad happens. No, a good week is when all things bad happen and you conquer it anyway because you're a son. Period. That's the mind renewal that God's giving you. But you can't do that without consciously making a decision on the small lines that are drawn in your sand circumstantially. That way when the big one comes, you're on the right side. Amen. Do you guys know that I'm a student of revival. I don't know if you guys have ever studied revival history, but every time a revival comes, there is a massive split down the middle in the church. Every time. 
You have the people on one side who are so hungry for God and they've been preparing their mind, they've been praying, they've been fasting, they've been seeking God, asking God, begging God for something more. And then you have all the theologically correct people on the other side. How many of you guys know the, the, the Pharisees were theologically correct? But when Jesus showed up, they were wrong. When God shows up, a line is drawn. I don't care your experience. In fact, nobody does. A testimony is only beautiful in a sense because you're kind of like, oh, that's so sweet. But it doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's personal to you. Does that make sense? Yes. I'll prove it. I died once and God brought me back to life. Does that mean anything to you? Maybe in a small humanistic sense, but it doesn't change your life. It doesn't change your life. It doesn't change your life. Now, if that happened to you, you'd be like, dang, that was just one time. Because it means something to you. So your theology and your experience only go so far, but your theology and experience, I promise you, will, will pale in comparison to the reality of Jesus when he shows up. When Jesus shows up, your reality and your experiences with him before that point are a moot point. You fall at his feet as though you were dead, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in the, I don't even know who you are. We sang it. I want to know your heart. I want to see you as you are. So much of what we know to be God is what we've created in our mind that God is. And what you've created in your mind of what God is is only based upon what he's done. What about the part of him that hasn't moved in your life yet and you have no frame of reference of defining who he is by what he's done in the future because he's not done it yet, therefore you don't know that, kind, that part of him? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Everybody in here has an idea of who God is and it's all based upon what God's done in your past. Not wrong, but it's not fully accurate. You with me? Yeah. If you were a drug addict and God saved you from drugs, you know him as deliverer. But if you've never been healed, you don't know him as healer. Right. Are you with me? Yes. And if you spend your entire life saying, no, God is only deliverer, then you're going to miss him when he shows up as healer. This is why so many churches get blocked down, locked down in the ideas of denominationalism because they're basing all of their beliefisms on what somebody experienced in the past. Somebody blueprinted out and said, these are our core values and our beliefs. But when God begins to move outside of those core values and beliefs, they, they even brand it as being demonic. How are we supposed to go from glory to glory and strength to strength if we're not willing to let go of the old one? Jesus says you'll do greater things. How many of you guys know that those things are written down? So tell me what those things are. You can't. Which means when they come, are you going to say it's God or are you going to say it's the devil? You don't know, do you? How do you know? You know him. You begin to know him. And you begin to know the people around you. And whenever you know somebody's seeking God and you know that you've walked with them in community for years and God moves in them in a new, fresh way that may be different and you're like, what is this? I don't know what this is, but I know that person and they're not demonically influenced because I know them and they love God and this thing that's happening right now, I have to trust it. Even though it's unfamiliar to me. How many of you guys know that they had to trust Jesus to be the Messiah? Because everything that he accomplished when he came did not look according to the pre-formatted ideas that the Pharisees said he's going to come this way. He, exactly, he actually came the exact opposite to the current theology that they were teaching in that day. He came as a baby, not riding a horse, coming down from heaven with armies. They, got, they were accurate, but they were wrong. 
He is going to come back like that, just not the first time. You with me? They read the Bible and they misappropriated what God said because of an unrenewed mind. They mistook the second coming for the first one. They were, wrong, they were accurate, but they were wrong. And that's what theology does without the Holy Spirit. It gives you a false sense of accuracy, yet you're wrong. Again, it's one thing to hear him. It's another thing to properly interpret what you heard. How many of you guys have ever had a dream or a vision and it ended up being completely opposite of what you thought it was going to be? Or God call you into something and you think, oh man, it's going to be this way. And then you get there and it's not that way at all. How many of you guys know that whenever you begin to hear him, you better go to neutral because you're like, wait a minute, I've done this enough to know that it's not going to happen the way I thought. When God asked me to start a church, I didn't want to. It was the last thing I wanted to do. I did not want to start a church. I never wanted to be a pastor, ever, because I know what they go through. And I realized I knew what was going to happen. And it happened, but just not the way I thought. And it was, it was hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's hard enough to deal with myself, let alone everybody else. So, listen, I wanna, I'm gonna, we're going to get to Exodus here in a second, but I want to give you some, some backdrops. It's just a, one quick story. There's multiple. I, have, I can't do all the, the frame of reference in here and all the contextual stuff because it's just going to take too long. But how many of you guys know the story of Gideon? Right, so God calls Gideon, and he goes. You know, he says you're going to raise you know up this army, and you're going to fight. And well, he raises all these people. He hears God correctly, and he masses all these armies. And he got all these. Like, you know, he's like, man, we need more people. We need more people. We need more people. And Jesus is like, I just, I just need eleven. I'm good. See, what you, sometimes you think you need more when you actually need less. Your mind's telling you you need more, and Jesus says, no, you just need to work with what I've given you. So if you're faithful, you want to raise, be faithful in what you've been given. And you'll be okay. So Gideon calls all these people and God begins to whittle it all down, whittle it all down. And the final test was, he says, you bring them out to this, this place and let them drink. And everybody who gets on all fours and, and, and sucks it out of, of, the, of the water like a, you know, a dog, send them home. And he says, but everybody who kneels down and just brings his hand to his, his mouth and begins to drink that way, then that's your army. So, so what happened was is that when these guys were in the field working their sheep, doing what they're doing, they began to train themselves without realizing they were training themselves. See, they didn't hold the posture of war in a time of peace. You understand what I'm saying? They thought that their individual daily lives weren't important enough to train themselves in in the calling of God. So the guys who just dropped everything and put their face in the water, they were more selfish in their outlook on life because that's, you can drink a lot of water real fast that way. But the guys who maintained a mindset of war, a mindset of posture of having to fight for something, having to own something, having to, to be revealed for something, have a destiny and a purpose, they carried that posture into every day of their life to the point where even when they drank, they were on guard when they didn't have to be. 
watching your sheep, work in the mill, whatever, need a drink, you kneel down, you keep an eye on everything, you watch, and you bring it to your face, and you just keep watching, because you know you have a mandate, you have a, you have a call to be ready, instant, in season, and out of season. The church doesn't do that. We, call, we chalk up Monday through Saturday as something we have to endure, and we get to Sunday, and we're like, oh, I feel so much better, and now I've got to start all over again. But see, how you train yourself in your personal life determines whether you're called to a public warfare. Why won't God use me? Maybe you're drinking wrong. See, we think, we've been trained that that successful church is big ministries, big buildings, lots of people, big sound systems, and Jesus really tried hard to teach us that the kingdom was based on the smallest things that nobody saw. Remember that woman who came and gave that half a penny? Only God saw that. No one else saw it. When you're on your job site and you're only given a half a penny, if you don't have a renewed mind, the devil's going to tell you what you're given is useless. What you're doing is meaningless. It is if you look at it in the, in the grand scheme of American successful reality. But if you're looking at it in the kingdom of God, you can look at that lying devil and say, I'm not doing this for you or that man anyway. I'm doing it for Jesus and his eye is always on me. That's a renewed mind. People who don't have renewed minds get caught in depression. Why? Because they don't believe that their current reality means anything. Therefore, they don't put anything into it. And we've trained an entire generation to be lazy because it doesn't mean anything. We've trained them so much to not put effort into their entry-level job positions because we've told them you're not going to be there for very long, so just do what you have to do and work your way up and then move and, and, and move somewhere else. Well the, well, the Bible simply says that God looks to the man that swears to his own hurt. In other words, that God's eye pays attention to the person who delivers on his promise even if it costs him more than what he thought in the beginning when he made it. Are you with me? Yes. See, how you drink in your daily life determines whether God picks you for his battles or not. And I believe there's a lot of people who've wasted their life not because of any other reason that they just didn't, tr- they didn't train themselves to realize that what God had them doing right now was for something that was coming later. And when the something that came later, they weren't ready, so God passed them by and chose someone else. And it wasn't God that overlooked them. They overlooked themselves. See, God developed an understanding of David's heart, not when he was on the throne, but when nobody was watching and when he was in the field. It's hard to do right if you're groomed to constantly receive praise. This participation trophy is from hell. Because it, it, it changes the mindset. That I don't have to work hard and I get a, and I get a reward. Yes. No, you understand Judgment Day is all about rewards and those who work the hardest? It's exactly what it's about. <coughs> Go read the parables of the kingdom all over again that Jesus talked, especially with the book of Matthew. And you'll see what I'm talking about. 
There's a story, I'm going to just say this real quick before we get to Exodus, of a, it was many years ago, there was a police officer who was um, involved in a, in a shooting on a traffic stop. He, um, this guy pulled a gun on him, so he ran back to his car and got behind his door like he's supposed to do. This was back when everybody carried revolvers. And he had this shootout with this person. Well, he called in, radioed in, and by the time they got there, he was dead behind his car. And when they found him, he had a handful of brass in one hand and an open revolver in the other. And what they figured out was is that when he was training at the firing range, that every day he went to shoot, he would dump the brass into his hand and then take the brass from his hand and put it in the in the bucket to save the brass. When he should have been training to dump the brass out on the, on the ground so he could have his hand free to reload. And without realizing, when he got put in the dangerous situation, when, when, when the war came, he reverted back to how he trained himself and it cost him his life. Some of us are holding something in our hand that we need to let go of because God's saying, I want you to focus on what I'm calling you to do and not holding on to what you think you need to do. Yes. This makes sense to you. Yes. All this comes from a mind renewal situation. See, nobody can help you renew your mind. It's a choice that when you're encountered with, when you're fighting the lion and the bear, that you understand who your God is. And if you don't understand it there, don't ask God for Goliaths in your life to take them out because they will take you out. See, listen, some of y'all have right theology in that, you know, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. That is a truth that is only applied to those under, under the banner of obedience. I promise you this, if you're living in rebellion in your life and you go to a witch's house and you try to take her on, she will destroy your life. Not because the truth that you know isn't accurate, it's because you aren't underneath that banner. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Obey me. Disobedience is rebellion. Rebellion is owned by the devil. If you participate in what he owns, you do not have the right to go pick a fight with him and expect to win. This is why most demonic people don't fear Christians, because most Christians don't operate in obedience. Do you realize when Jesus says that we need to renew our mind through Paul? That that wasn't a suggestion. It's not if you feel like it. It is a command. When it says take every thought captive, that is not a good idea. It's a command. You don't have the right to think your own thoughts. See, I know this whole liberty thing and freedom and all this Americanism has got into your brain, your blood, you think you have rights, but under the kingdom of heaven, you have zero. Nobody possesses rights in this room. The only right you have is to walk into the throne room of God and bow. That's it. We don't have the right to think our own thoughts. If the Holy Spirit checks us and we're thinking thoughts we shouldn't think, and we continue to do that, we are in willful rebellion. And we've missed our moment to renew our mind. Does it make sense to you? Yes. All right. Exodus 14, we're going we're gonna to start in verse 17. Because I want you to understand something. God's about to do something in this nation. He's already doing things. There's, there's, God's beginning to move. But when God begins to move, a lot of times people miss the, the reason why he's moving. They get caught up in the fact that, man, God's moving. This is awesome. His spirit's moving. His presence is here. But why? 
so you can become some sort of spiritual addict and just bathe in the Holy Spirit and have your little goosebumps and why does he move? Because he's building something that's going to crescendo in a war that he needs his people ready to fight and lay down their lives if necessary. So in Exodus chapter 14, I want you to see this. It's, this is the story of, of, of the children of Israel in the Exodus. And so Moses has led the people out of Egypt already, and they're going, and Pharaoh changes his mind, and they're pursuing the children of Israel, and they get to the Red Sea, and uh, the Egyptian army is there, and then the, the, the Israeli people are sitting there, and they're just trapped, and, and there's just this moment there where it's like really tense. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You've got an army just hundreds of feet away, that's there to slaughter you. And the only thing between you and them is this cloud. And both of you are freaked out. So let's read what happens here. It says, verse 17, he says, I've made, I've made the Egyptians' hard, hearts hard. I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they'll follow me. Or they shall follow you. Listen, first of all, I want you to stop right there and understand that People who have hard hearts often follow the moves of God. It's sad, but it's true. People who have hard hearts often follow the moves of God. They're not willing to build one, stay, sweat, fight, claw through, pray fast. But when one starts to happen, they'll jump on board because it's like, oh, this is kind of nice. <laughs> and then as soon as it gets hard, they bail, right? But when people have hard hearts, a lot of times they're going to be following the move that you produce in your, in your, in your life. God was moving in the children of Israel and these people were following. The wrong reasons, but they were following. So it's possible to be in the presence of the Lord for the wrong reasons. I mean, this, this is what, I mean, they can't get any closer to the angel of God, <laughs> which in scripture is Jesus. Hebrews says that they ate from that same, that, that spiritual rock and that, that, that cloud, that fire, that spiritual rock was Christ. So he says, I'll gain honor over Pharaoh and, and all of his armies and his chariots and horsemen. See, so God positions these people in a very hard, hard place, true or not? True. For what? For his glory. So God puts you in hard positions for what? So every time you realize you're in a hard position, why are we always blaming it on the devil or blaming it on somebody else or blaming it on the person who hurt you? Why can't you stop and say, wait a minute, this is for his glory. I'm undefeatable. Even if I die, I win. Like, what are you going to do to me? Right? I, I, can't be, I can't be moved. This is for the glory of God. So I will endure it. And if it never changes, I'll still worship you, Jesus. I'll still praise you. I'll still love you. Yes. Right? I'm going I'm, I'm to gain honor over Pharaoh and all his armies, his horsemen, his chariots, his chariots, his horsemen. Next verse. Then the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord and I've gained honor for myself over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Next verse. Listen, now this is awesome. The angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. A pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. Next verse. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was that a cloud of darkness was to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that one didn't come near to the other all night long. Let me say it this way. 
a move of God happened, half the people saw it as darkness, and the other half saw it as light. Same move, completely different interpretation. See, when God begins to move in your life, how you determine it depends on the mindset you've already created. We want God to move. The problem is, is that when he moves, some people see it as darkness because they haven't renewed their mind. They have hard hearts. Do you know why bitterness is so dangerous? It's because another person's sin becomes your own. And when that person's sin becomes your own, you harden yourself to not be moved by God. So what God did on the cross doesn't move you. But what somebody else did against you does. You've chosen your God. Bitterness is worshiping the person who hurt you. I'm going to let that hang just for a second while I take a drink of water. (laughs) See, the moves of God bring people to two distinct camps. I've seen people who've undergone the same trials, the same situations, the same upbringing, and one finds the Lord in it, the other one finds bitterness. One finds light, and the other finds darkness. Why? Right here. One renewed their mind, the other didn't. Let me give you a a quick tip on how to begin to renew your mind. You wanna know? It's really simple. Go neutral. As long as you care about what's happened, what happens next, you're never going to be able to be moved by God. Your first step in renewing your mind is letting go and going, okay, God, not my will, yours be done. Whatever you want to do, I'm open for it. If it's taking away the thing that I don't want you to take away, then I'm open for it. If it's giving me something you, I don't want, then I'm open to take it. The first step in mind renewal is laying down your will. You cannot renew your mind while hanging on to your choices and your will. If you want things done a certain way in your marriage and it's not God's way, God is not going to change your mind about it. If you want things done in your job a certain way and you're not the boss and you're going to hold on to that, it's never going to change for you until you go neutral. If you're coming to God in prayer over an issue and you're not willing for him to do the exact opposite of what you're asking for, then you already come with preconceived ideas. And you're asking God to bow to your prayers instead of you bowing to his will. First stage of mind renewal, go neutral. Once you get there, then you can trust yourself about when God speaks to you about where to be moved. Because then if he asks you to do the thing you don't want to do, you'll say, okay. Okay. And guess what, guys? Nine times out of ten, he's going to ask you what you don't want to do. What you're going to find when you begin to renew your mind is the thing that you didn't want to do the whole time you were fighting against is probably going to be a thing you end up doing in the end anyway. You just die tired when you fight God. You don't win. You just die tired. So, same move, two different results. One camp had their heart hard toward God, the other did not. I've watched it happen when revivals hit places, massive revivals, world-shaking revivals. 
I mean, there was one story where in the Brownsville revival, when it hit, people were crawling out the door saying, I don't believe in this. I mean, literally under the power of God, could not walk out under their own two feet, crawling out the door with the presence of God all over them. I don't agree with this. I don't believe in this. Crawling down the steps, falling down over the steps out there, crawling into their car and driving off the property. God will offend your mind to expose your heart. God will upset your theological apple cart to be able to prove to you that you don't know everything. And the moment you think that you're, you're really secure in some sort of theological principle, God's going to flip it on you and you're going to go, oh man. I, I promise you, in my personal life, I've had so many times where I felt like, man, I've got this thing now and Jesus just changes so much on me and I've got to go back and go, man, God, I, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know. I think I thought I knew, but I, you just ruined everything for me. I have to start all over. I thought I loved people, but I see I don't. And I got to start over. Are you with me? Yes. Same move of God interpreted two different ways, two different mindsets. I want to. I want to. I want to propose to you. I want to propose to you the fact that the people who had to undergo the greatest hardship in this story had the best mindset. (laughs) These people of Israel were slaves for 430 years. And those with the hardest story had the place where they had the open mind. And those who had the comfort and the power and the control and the success and the money missed the move of God. How many want God to move? Let me say this. You better be ready when he does. And he's not going to do that for you. That is your job. You with me? Let's go to um, Matthew 4, 16. It says, "The The people which sat in darkness saw a great light. And to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has sprung up. And from that time forward, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 16 and 17. These people were sitting in darkness. God moves. Light comes. And when the light comes, Jesus begins to preach repentance, which is the changing of the mind. I don't know how we miss this in theological circles. Somehow, over 150 years of preaching, somehow the church got trained that repentance is coming down to an altar and confessing some sin and crying about how sorry you are over it while somebody prays for you and leads you in, 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 in repentance. That is not repentance. That's called confession and forgiveness. Repentance is when you change how you think so radically that you never have to confess again. You live in such a new way. You change your entire outlook on life. Everything that you thought was black is now white. Everything you thought was white is now black. Everything gets turned up on its head. You get a new understanding of the system. And Jesus said, if you don't change how you think, you are not going to be able to understand anything that I do from this point forward, including my teachings. He started his ministry by telling people, you can no longer identify with me by the Jewish culture. I'm here to change your opinion of who God is. And if he said it to them, he's going to say it to us. 
You say, well, we're under the new covenant, so that doesn't apply to us. Then why under the new covenant did all of his disciples not recognize him when he got up from the grave? Because God reserves certain parts of himself that only people who will lay down their ideas of him will actually find. And the rest of them, they just find their religion. And they're satisfied to operate in it. And when God begins to move radically, that's not the Lord. We've had a couple of ladies, I don't know, six or eight months ago, we had God moved in this service so powerfully and knocked one of our, our musicians to the stage and they were just weeping and bawling and crying unto the Lord. And these ladies walk out, that's not even biblical. I can show you a lot of places when God shows up, people hit the floor. What do you think you're going to do in heaven? Stand on your own two feet the first time you meet him? (laughs) If you actually think that that's going to be the case, you're arrogant. I probably won't be able to get up for a thousand years. See that man. To see him. That's just going to ruin me. See, Jesus started his entire ministry with the prerequisite of mind renewal, and the church missed it. And we marched on in our proper, staunch realities, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're saved. I'm glad God did something in your life. I'm glad you have an experience at some point in your life. But that is not the full gospel. Jesus wants us to move with him. He said, follow me. There was a prophetic utterance when he said that. It means that you're never allowed to stand still. You're always going to be two steps behind me, but I promise you I'll bring up the rear. Some of the most difficult people I've ever had to deal with were religious twits. (laughs) Where their experiences from God override their reality with God. And they're some of the most demonic unfriendly, untruthful, lack of character people you'll ever meet. All they want to do is start arguments about what you disagree. I do not want my life to be branded by what I don't believe. I want people to know what I do. I want them to know the man that I believe in, not the demon that I don't. Wasting a bunch of time. Oh my gosh, it's so aggravating when I encounter those. I just walk away. Let me give you a bit of advice. Don't ever argue with a religious devil. Just smile. Let them pump themselves full of their own liquid iniquity. And you just walk away. And you give what's holy in your spirit to those who are hungry. Oh. You remember the story, and um, go ahead and turn to Mark 645, or you can watch it on the screen. Jesus walks on water. Why was that possible? Because he had a different mindset. See, the mind of Christ sees possibility where the mind of the Adamic nature only sees improbability. See, when the mind of Christ trains itself to know that anything's possible, Jesus said what? All things are possible to them who... He said all things, right? Well, I think if God says all things, God means all things. I think God knows more about what all things are than we do. Like his context of all things is a lot broader than ours. Because 
we can't even understand the three square feet we inhabit, let alone mm -hmm. everything else he's, we haven't even discovered most of the ocean. And we think we know who God is. So he says in verse 45, he, he told his disciples, get into the ship and go to the other side. See, why did Jesus send them somewhere where he wasn't going to be? Sometimes God places you in situations where he doesn't look like he's present, not so much because he's trying to destroy you or be sadistic and, and torture you. It's to show you that you're not thinking the way he's thinking. Yes. God has to expose our, our, our lack of faith in him many times by placing us in a situation where he realizes, he makes us realize that we're not trusting him the way he is and what, he's, and what he would say and do. We realize in that moment we're not acting as Jesus would act. We're not, ta we're not taking the opportunity that Jesus would take. But see, if, unless you're around the man, you don't know the possibility. Yes. See, what he was doing was not only exposing where they weren't, but he was also exposing their possibility of where they could be. Mm -hmm. See, God never tells you just what you aren't. He'll, also, he'll show you where you're not, but he'll also show you what your potential is in the same moment. Yes. So not only was he showing them, you don't believe that you can walk on water, I'm showing that you, you can I'm exposing why you're not, but I'm showing you the reality of your, of your potential. But what we want to do is beat ourselves up because we've, we didn't walk on the water. Well, let me tell you something. If you've walked out of that situation not walking on the water, but now believing that you can, you succeeded. Yes, amen. It's simple. He sent him away and he departed to a mountain to pray. And when he was gone, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone was on the land. Verse 48, he saw them toiling and rowing for the wind was contrary against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, it was like three o'clock in the morning, he came to them and walked on the sea and act like he was going to pass by. I love that story. I love the way Mark puts this um, versus the other gospels. Because sometimes I feel like that's my walk with Jesus. I'm just fighting and oh, I'm going, I'm rowing, I'm trying to get ahead. And Jesus is like, what you doing? <laughs> and I'm just like, a little help? He says, I'll give it to you when you stop trying so hard. Because yes. Yes. see, what I figured out, there's only, two, there's only one person that can work in any given situation and we get to decide who that is. And if we choose us, God backs out. So many people come to me all the time, why is my life so, so messed up? It's because you're too involved in it. <laughs> right? God says he sees you fighting and toiling and rowing and trying to do what he told you to do with your own strength. He, what he, he told them to go, right? Yes. They heard the voice of the Lord, correct? Yes. Did they do it with Jesus or apart from him? You know how I many ministries are birthed by hearing what God wants somebody to do, but then they begin to work for God instead of with God? And they damage people and hurt people because they're doing it without Jesus and they're doing it justifying themselves because they heard God these guys are rolling with everything they're, they're obedient are, are we not I mean are they are they disobeying God no they're just trying to do it without him I'd like to think that I would have been like Jesus I'm not getting that boat until you do I'll go but not until you do where are you going? To pray? I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to. I've learned that if I get in that boat without you, I'm done. 
And that's developing the mind of Christ. Yes. Moses did the same thing. He said, you go. He said, no way. I think it's okay for us to talk to God like that. God tells you to do something, say, no, I ain't doing it. Not unless you go with me. I will not unless you come with me. Yes. I tell him that all the time. God, you won't, if you're not with me and pastor in this church, I'm, I will quit because I will wreck everything. Without you, I will wreck it all. It would be safer for everybody if I just quit than it would be to carry on assuming that I'm doing everything right but only doing it on my own. And he says, he walks up to him and, oh man, verse 50, so awesome. You see that exclamation point there? I mean, I, okay, you're, you're in the worst fear of your life and Jesus comes walking up unaffected by your circumstances. He goes, you need to be happy, brother. I'm here. And they're just like, Be happy. It's hard to be happy when he's not in your boat. Listen, the mind of Christ can find joy in the worst possible circumstances. I mean, Jesus isn't, he's not, he's, he's not afraid. I think he's actually at this point smiling, kind of giggling a little bit, chuckling, looking at him. And they're looking at him like, why are you making fun of me? We're trying to obey. We're trying to work for you. Why do you treat me like this? And I think the moral of the story is don't go anywhere unless I'm there. We know in other, other gospels, it, it talks about Jesus calling Peter out. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's God's heart for you to be where he is. Yes. Even if it's impossible. Mm-hmm. All the more reason to be there. Yeah. And we know the story. He took his eyes off Jesus. He sunk the whole thing. With me? The point of this thing is that sometimes God places you in circumstances to see how your mind's going to react so that way he can show you your potential instead of showing you where you failed. An Adamic mind will always see where it fails God. I need to say that again. The Adamic mind will always see where it fails God. It will never see where God hasn't failed them. Which one do you have? When you get into a hard situation or you fail and you screw up and you don't do everything right and you had a bad week and you, you were the center of it and you messed it up, which one do you look at? Where you failed or where he su- secured your success? It depends on which mind do you have. Because if I sit there and beat myself up for two weeks about where I failed, what have I accomplished? All I've accomplished is me spitting on the cross of Christ saying what well, your sacrifice wasn't good enough and now I have to pay for my own crimes in order for be satisfied to, to be restored to you. Mm-hmm. See, when God called you, he factored in your ignorance. <laughs> I'm going to have to run down here a little bit and skip some stuff. Go to James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 2. See, when we're insistent upon our, our own way, we're blind to something better. 
it's, 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 it's true. When you're insistent upon your own way, you are blind to anything better. And when you're trying to lead somebody like that, you know what you do? You let them go do it. And they'll figure out it wasn't right. They'll come back. Yep. See, ministry is not keeping people from sin. Some of y'all need to get that revelation. When you minister to your children, it's not trying to keep them from sin. Now, at certain points, you can't let certain things happen. I'm not saying let them all go. But what I'm saying is, is that you're not, it's not your job to bring people to Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Your job is to disciple them once they decide to stay. Somebody comes in here and they want to have a meeting with me and then they decide I'm going to go do this and I tell them like, it's not even biblical, bro. And they're like, well, I know what God said. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I will not waste any more time on that conversation. Your circumstances will be your teacher. And now you're about to waste five years of your life that you'll never get back, but that's your choice. You with me? So he says, count it all joy when you fall into manifold temptations. You guys have heard that verse before. Nobody likes it. How are you able to do that? You can't with an Adamic mind. You can't. The reason people don't like this verse is because they're trying to do it with the mind of man instead of the mind of God. And you'll fail every time. But once you begin to renew your mind, what will happen is instead of you trying to do this, this will automatically be done through you. See, this is not something to obey. This is just something to release. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Next verse. Because these trials are proof to you that your faith produces patience in you. So how many of you say, oh, Lord, I need more patience when you're rejecting the trials he's already giving you? Well, you don't know my situation. You don't know my husband. You don't know my kids. You don't know my grandkids. You don't know how demonic they are. You don't know how stubborn they are. Oh, yeah, I do. Because all humans are the same. (laughs) They're all the same. Without Jesus, everybody's the same. All men are the same. All women are the same. I don't have to be a prophet to know that. I've just done ministry long enough when I see somebody who's not saved as a woman, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with them and I start calling it out. They think I'm, I'm some sort of prophet. I'm like, no, you're just a woman. Simple. You haven't become a daughter of Zion yet. Once you become a daughter of Zion, all that crap falls off. Same thing with a man. Same thing. No, you're just a male. You haven't realized you're a son of God. Count of joy when you because this testing of your faith produces patience. In other words, when you 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 begin to get excited when something bad is coming against you because you know that the mind of God is telling you there's about to be patience coming to my life. Something good's coming because of this attack. And then you train yourself that the war is on, so the blessing is coming. Instead of the war is on, oh my God. You with me? And let patience have its perfect work. Do you realize that is a, that's a submission verse? You have to let it have its work or it won't. 
In other words, what it's saying is, is you have to let the trial continue. Don't stop it. Don't be tempted to get into the Adamic nature and fix it. Mothers trying to fix their children and fix their husbands. <laughs> you want a man, whether it's a boy or a, or a husband to rebel, just try to fix him. We're naturally inclined to fight you. All the women said, it ain't gonna happen. We will win even though we lose. You, you with me? Let the trial have its work. When you see somebody starting to get bogged down by the choices of their life, it's not your ministry to go stop them from doing the thing that's killing them. It's your ministry to be there when they're dead and raise them back up. Jesus didn't say, go fix the world. You with me? Oh, man, some of y'all, you just get this. Your problems just go somewhere, and you'll be like, this is awesome. <laughs> let, let patience have its perfect work, that you would be perfect and made whole, lacking in nothing. How many of you want to be lacking in nothing? Do you realize how you get to the part where you are lacking nothing as you actually endure the temptation and not try to get out of it? Yeah. Yeah. See, some of you are not whole because you haven't stayed in the battle that God placed you in. You stay fragmented by the choices you make and then you blame God for not being whole or others. When in reality, it's just because you haven't stayed under the conflict long enough to let patience have its work in you so that the work of God can come and make you perfect. Why are you able to stay in that, in that kind of mindset? Why are you able to stay in that kind of hell and that kind of reality? Because you see what's coming after. Why was Jesus able to stay in Gethsemane sweating blood? Why was Jesus able to stay on the cross? Why? Because it was, he found some sort of nirvana there? Because he saw what was coming after. You need to see the version of yourself that's coming after the conflict that you're in. Jesus saw you after the cross, not just before the cross. See, the before the cross you is a terrible person. But Jesus died not for that person. He died for the person that you're going to be after the cross. And if you come into that reality, then you're going to understand the principles of the kingdom. That it takes sacrifice and death and staying in something long enough to become the thing that God died to make you. But if you don't have his mind, you're going to exit every hard situation, whether it's in relationship or job or anything, because it's difficult and somebody's hurting you, just like we hurt Jesus. But he stayed. Why does the mind of Christ succeed where the Adamic mind fails? Because the mind of Christ sees what is coming. It's trained itself to know that this pain is not reality. Yes. Reality is what's coming. And you can walk up to the devil and smile right in his face and say, you're about to get it because if I just wait long enough, you can't stop resurrection power. And sons of God are custom designed to rise from the dead. The problem is they won't die. See all these stupid Facebook posts about, you know, don't let people abuse you. Why not? You're built for it. Am I saying stay in a place where somebody's physically beating you to death? No, I'm not saying that. No, you get out of those situations. 
But if you've got a coworker who's always on your case and not treating you very right and you're always upset about it, you're there to purify their evil. God placed you there because you're the only light he can trust. You just don't believe in yourself as much as he does. See, the fact that you're there means God believes in you. But all these problems and all this stuff and all these kids and all this circumstance, tell me how that's, that's relevant. It's not relevant. You with me? Yes. All right. But he says, then if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Why, do you, why did he switch from letting patience and turmoil go to wisdom? Because when you're in the middle of those situations, you really need to know what to do. And the Adamic mind has no access to wisdom. It has access to knowledge, but not wisdom. When we ate of the tree in the beginning, we ate it from the tree of the what? The knowledge of good and evil. The Adamic mind is obsessed with who's right and wrong. The mind of Christ only cares about the wisdom of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about the wisdom of God is the cross. The wisdom of God is the cross. In other words, he said, if you're lacking wisdom, if you're lacking the understanding of seeing how this cross situation is playing out in your life, ask God to give you the understanding to see it so that way when you die, you'll know you'll be raised. What James is saying here is that you need to ask for wisdom. You need to see the reality of the cross in your, in your current situation because when you see the reality of the cross, you're going to see the reality of resurrection. Ask God for that when you get in those situations. God, I need wisdom. I need to know where to die. Right? And he says, if you let, then God is going to give it to you. But let him ask in faith, not, not doubting and not wavering, for he who doubts is like the surge of the sea tossed by the winds. People who, are, who live in the Adamic nature are, are literally moved by circumstances. Some of y'all, if I get to know you well enough, I wouldn't do this, but I could just push a button. And all of a sudden, I instantly control you. Just make you mad in just the right way. And now I got you. And even though you're not in my presence, you're going to live all week under my power and authority of what I did to you. And even though you're not in my geographical location, you're worshiping me from afar with your thoughts. He, I would never do that. But some people do that to you. And you give your whole week to them. See, I, that's, that's why people don't like me. That's why people think I'm arrogant because I'm not going to worship you when you're gone. You get mad at me. You can get offended at me. You can say all these things. You can push my buttons. I don't have time to be wasted upon your, your thoughts of me. I have no time for it. You won't be in my week at all unless I'm praying for you. You with me? Why? Because I need the mind of Christ. You with me? All right, I'm closing. Many prayers are not answered simply because the mind that generated them is off. People say, this, it says, he says, if you doubt and you ask God, you're going to receive anything from him. In other words, if you're moved by your circumstances, yet you're still praying, don't expect to get what you're praying for. And then you're going to come to the pastor and be like, oh, I'm praying and God's just not answering me. No, you're aborting your prayer by the mind that's praying the prayer to God. Does it make sense? Yes. God's not going to bless an Adamic mindset. Never. He'll, never. he'll never bless an Adamic nature. When I say Adamic, I mean the nature of Adam. They're unstable in everything they do. 
But watch this. Next few verses, I'm going to close with this. Verse 9. Why, I, always, I always figured, why, why did he put this in here? Like, it doesn't make sense. He, he goes from all this wisdom, double-minded, shaking stuff, and then he, and he starts going into this. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Why do you say that? Why? Because in the mind of Christ, the person who is low is raised up. See, he's, he starts going into the exact opposite of the nature that they're, they're seeing. He says, let the person who's low start rejoicing because they're actually raised. That's the mind shift. It's like, no longer am I a victim to this. I'm going to rejoice because I'm actually the victor. Because the mind changes, right? The mindset begins to change in a renewed mind. You begin to put yourself in the opposite situation of your reality because of the faith that you have in Jesus. Let the lowly brother start glorying in his exaltation. In other words, he's, he's, he's... glorying in something that he possesses yet he physically doesn't hold in his hands yet but he's rejoicing because he still owns it yeah Yeah, a tough crowd this morning but i try (laughs) next verse and let the rich man find his humiliation because as a flower of the field he will pass away next verse for no sooner is the sun risen with a great burning heat, it withers in the grass, the flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will fade in his pursuits. In other words, what he's saying is, is if you're rich, you need to walk in humility and lower yourself to the opposite reality because what's coming is going to be taken away from you. But if you hold yourself in humility, your reward will never be removed. Amen. You see how he's, he's teaching these people to believe and think the exact opposite of the reality. And it's not just positive confession. It's tangible substance of reality that we hold in our hearts to be truth, no matter what's going on. And if the truth kills us, we hold it to the very end. Yes. Verse 12, the final summation. Blessed is the man who endures all this process. For when he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Who gets that crown? The person who believed the reality of God and not the reality of their situation or the reality of their failure or the reality of somebody else's failure. Your daily life, every day of your life, hinges upon your ability to renew this thing. And if you don't, when God moves, you're going to find yourself in a situation with a hard heart. Because God doesn't always just move in revival. Sometimes God moves for people to offend you. So many churches are split because they finally realize that somebody's human. Oh, so you're going to go somewhere else and find perfection. Let me know if you ever find it. I'll join too. (laughs) But as soon as I show up, it's going to be imperfect again. Like you're going to go somewhere else and they're going to do it right. Ministers all the time. Well, I'm going to start a church and it's going to be the real one. You mean flawed and broken and bruised and bloody and full of human nature. (laughs) oh my goodness we need love not perfection 
Love covers a multitude of sins. You, oh, I want a pastor that's perfect. There ain't one. Let me tell you, as a pastor over 25 years, I'm telling you, people demand me to be perfect. Even more than you realize, you demand me to be perfect. It's the wrong mindset. Because the moment God exposes my humanity to you and you haven't renewed your mind, you know what you're going to do? Sow the seed of division and walk out the door. And you've done more damage by leaving than actually staying and watching the damage you thought you saw happening. These six things does the Lord hate, and the seventh is abomination to him. You know what the seventh one is? He that sows discord amongst the brethren. In God's mind, sowing discord and and division amongst the church is is worse than homosexuality. (gasps) Go read your Bibles, guys. Do I condone homosexuality? Absolutely not. It's a sin. But so is division. But we make permissible one while we have the other one as inexcusable. See, if you leave and you sow division by what you see that's wrong, you've already shown everybody around that you have the mind of Adam. All you're able of, of doing is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All you're able to do is walk in and perceive where everybody's wrong. And you call that discernment. I call it demonic suspicion. Because the devil can always find what's his. And if that's all you can find too, I wonder who owns you. Jesus saw a pearl buried in some dirt. He didn't see the dirt. He saw the pearl. See, everybody thinks that, that we dig for the pearl and Jesus is the pearl, and that's not truth. It says the man left his father and his mother. He left, Jesus left the Father and the Holy Spirit. He came down and dug in our dirt. Why? Because he saw something valuable in us. He sold all of heaven to buy us. If you can't see that in your brother and your sister, you don't have the mind of Christ. Developing the mind of Christ has everything to do with your everyday routine and how you train yourself this week will actually position and posture you when the biggest battle of your life ever comes. And if you can't trust God now in the small things, what happens when you finally do lose a loved one? Because you will. Everybody has to get off the planet. You will lose somebody. What are you going to do when that happens? Blame God? Or rejoice that you know resurrection's coming. You can stand to your feet. So Lord, we come to you this morning. We pray for a move, but we pray that we'd be ready. That when you draw the line in the sand, that Father, we'd be on the right side. There was ten virgins, and all of them woke up. And all of them were pure. And all of them thought they had the right things. And all of them had lamps. But only five of them made it. And we don't want to presume that we're that five. God, we want to know that we are. We want reality. We want your reality. We want to see what you see. We want to have what you have. We want to lay low before you. We want to posture ourselves in humility. And God, we want to pour the oil on your feet every day of our life. And as you give us these opportunities, forgive us. Forgive us for wasting them. Forgive us for not taking the moments of, of suspicion and pain and taking them captive and making them serve you. God, we ask that you would just give us another chance in our jobs and our marriages to be able to say, God, you've given me this opportunity for your glory, that I'm 
I'm not here to, to fix things. I'm here to glorify you. And if I can be that source of light and that source of power in that moment, that God, thank you for participating with me in this thing. That you will bring resurrection power out of this situation. You'll bring resurrection life into this marriage. You'll bring resurrection life into these finances, into this situation, into this society, this world, into Russia and Ukraine. That God, you are the God who raises the dead. And we shouldn't fear when you put us on crosses that we arrange our minds to think like Jesus and to take thoughts captive that Father we become the people of God and properly interpret what we hear. Father we pray for grace and mercy. We pray for protection. God I pray that you would begin by the Holy Spirit to begin to move through these people throughout this week and gently remind them think upon these things. Think upon these things. God bless them. Bless our time together. Bless this food to our fellowship. Bless those who are here for their first time. May they be enriched and Father may they they find you in a new way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.